remain standing for our epistle lessons, which are also going to be our sermon texts for today. First from Galatians 4, 6, 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And now from Romans 8, starting in verse 12, I'm going to read to verse 34. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. In us, rather. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, 
whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading and hearing and preaching of Your Word. Sanctify us today by Your truth, by Your Word, because Your Word is truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Last week was Trinity Sunday, and in last week's sermon, we reflected on the eternal nature of our triune God. The title of that sermon was The Trinitarian Gospel. It was a topical sermon, as today's will be. It's going to be a little different. Normally, I just pick a passage and, and go through it line by line, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. But yes, last week and this week's sermons are more topical as we explore what the Bible has to say about the Trinity. We, we considered last week what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing for all eternity. But we also reflected on the historical activity of the Trinity. We considered what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing in history. That's how we know the Trinity. It's by what they have done, how they have revealed themselves in space, and in time, in Scripture. And we saw that the activities of the three persons of God in eternity are therefore not altogether different from their activities in history. They're of a piece with each other. The life and love that the three persons shared before the foundation of the world has been made manifest in creation, in history. The love that drove Father, Son, and Spirit to create the world is just the overflow of the love that they shared for all eternity before they created anything. And we can say the same thing about redemption. The love that drove Father, Son, and Spirit to redeem people from sin is the spilling over of the eternal love that they showed to one another, expressed to one another for all eternity. Paul's Gospel summary in Galatians 4, 4-6 present the three persons of God working in perfect unity for your and my salvation. God is love and the love of God 
is on display in creation and in redemption. But the love that's on display there is first of all an intra-Trinitarian love. A love that exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit do everything they do primarily for one another. To glorify one another. To love one another. Their acts of creation and salvation are for one another. But these acts are also examples of their willingness to include others in their eternal fellowship of love. Before we launch into some of the implications of the Trinitarian Gospel and the Trinitarian community, let's briefly review the foundation that we laid last week. What does Trinity even mean? And why is it important for us to think of God as a tri-unity, a three-person community? One of the tragedies in the modern church is that so many Christians, we might even say most evangelicals, don't think about their God and don't relate to God as three distinct persons. A lot of believers, even many raised in the church, are what I call functional Unitarians. What I mean here is that many pray to God and talk about God and think about God as if He were only one person. Their thoughts about God are more Unitarian than they are Trinitarian. When I was young, I remember talking with a woman who was a Sunday school teacher at our church. And we were discussing the Trinity, and she explained it to me this way. She said, the Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit. In the same way, my husband Rick is a father, and a son, and a husband. Rick is one person, but he has three different roles, three different titles. Now, this this lady was, of course, a nice, well-meaning woman. She knew the Bible better than most of the people in her church, and I don't doubt the genuineness of her faith. She, she knows God. I expect to see her in heaven. I'm not questioning her salvation. That's not what this is about at all. But looking back, I realize now that her explanation of the Trinity is actually an ancient heresy. In the early church, they called this heresy modalism. Many today still think of God in a modal modalistic way modalism is the view that God is one person with three different modes of existence sometimes this one person God shows up as father sometimes as as the son other times as the spirit but that's not what the Bible teaches in scripture God is not one person with three roles or three titles or three modes of existence no The God of the Bible is three persons with one mode of existence. One being. One substance. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. God is three distinct persons, but one God. Three persons 
who exist in one divine being. Three personalities in one mode of existence. That's what we mean when we say Trinity. We're talking about a unity, but also a community. The one true living God is a tri-unity. A perfect unity of three eternal persons. And God's oneness does not take precedence over His threeness. And God's threeness does not take precedence over His oneness. They are equally important, equally ultimate. And it might be good for us to reflect on why so many Christians have gotten away from a Trinitarian, a robust biblical Trinitarian understanding of God. There are at least a couple reasons that I can think of. One has to do with the kind of worship that characterizes many modern churches versus the kind of worship that characterizes the historic Christian church. The prayers and the songs of the ancient church are shot through with rich, biblical, Trinitarian theology. That's what we try to imitate in our service. When you look at how the early church and the Reformation church ordered their Lord's Day liturgy, you see all kinds of references to the three persons of the Trinity. The ancient church gave us the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which are confessions of our Trinitarian faith. The early church gave us the Deum and St. Patrick's Breastplate, two of the best hymns ever written, and both chock full of Trinitarian theology. In our home, we occasionally sing a lesser known hymn that was written in the 6th century. And I found a, a Lutheran pastor who put it to a kind of Gregorian chant. So we sing it in our home. And one of the verses goes like this All Holy Father, Son, and equal Spirit, Trinity blessed, send us Thy salvation. Thine is the glory gleaming and resounding through all creation. I love how this verse simply but elegantly ties creation and salvation to the three equal persons of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed and eternal Trinity. A more recent hymn couple hundred years old that we sing regularly in our services. It goes like this. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's vital that we maintain this kind of Trinitarian language in our songs, in our prayers, in our confessions, in our liturgical forms. So it's no accident that every week here at Christ the King Church, we sing the doxology and the Gloria Patri, which exalt all three persons of the Godhead. It's no accident that every week we say either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which speak of the eternal nature and the historical acts of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in creation and redemption. It's no accident that every week at the end of the service, I reiterate the the Trinity-shaped 
commission, great commission, at the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus commands His people to disciple others by baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's no accident that I begin every service by calling on all of you to stand and worship God in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's no accident that at the end, the very end of every service, I say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. And even in the prayers that change from week to week, virtually every one of them addresses all three persons. This is how the church has always approached God in personal prayer and in public prayer. Trinity-saturated worship language is how the historic church has instructed the saints in Trinitarian truth throughout the ages. We need to make sure we preserve that and continue that in the way we pray, the way we sing, the way we worship on the Lord's Day, the way we worship in our homes. A second reason that popular Christianity lacks a robust biblical understanding of the Trinity is that the basics of Trinitarian doctrine are seldom taught and preached on in many evangelical churches. Not sure why. This may be because preachers and teachers assume that the saints already have a good grasp of the Trinity, or maybe because pastors view the Trinity as dusty dogma that doesn't have a lot of practical value, or they don't think people will be engaged or entertained by a sermon or a teaching on that. Whatever the cause, the result, is, the result is that there are a lot of believers who have not been given a basic understanding of Trinitarian theology. Who don't think of their God as a unity of three persons. Who think that the Trinity is perhaps just for the theologians and the philosophers. But the Trinity is not just a doctrine to study or a riddle to solve. Father, Son, and Spirit are persons to know, to love, to be in communion with. And there's nothing in all of reality more practical than the Trinity. As we saw last week, the Trinity is the Gospel. And without the Trinity, there could be no Gospel. There could be no hope of good news because if God were not a trinity if God were just one person he would not be a God of love as we saw last week a one person deity could not have love as one of his eternal attributes love wouldn't be part of his eternal essence because for all eternity such a one person deity would have had no one else to love He would have been by Himself for all eternity. The one true God, on the other hand, has been in community for all eternity. God exists as a community of three equal persons who have related to one another in perfect love, in pure love, forever as Father, Son, and Spirit. One being one God in three distinct, distinguishable, but inseparable persons. So unlike the 
self-centered one-person gods of Islam and Judaism and Deism. The three-person God of Scripture is eternally others-focused. Eternally others-focused. The doctrine of the Trinity means that God has been others-centered forever. Before they created space and time and matter and mankind, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were giving themselves to one another in relationships of perfect love. In a community of self-giving love. You see, the bedrock of the good news, the bedrock of the Gospel that the cross of Christ rests on is the reality that the three persons of God who have been enjoying fellowship with one another for all eternity decided that they wanted to restore fellowship between you and them. Even when you were dead in your sins. Even when you were an enemy of the Trinity. Their eternal love for one another somehow mysteriously got directed toward you. That's not something we can explain. For reasons only known to God, you became the object of God's love. And so, as Paul says in Galatians 4, the Father sent the Son to pay for your sin on the cross, and the Son went to the cross in obedience to the Father. Then the Father sent the Spirit of the Son, the Holy Spirit, into your heart to seal your adoption as God's child. The Spirit resides in your heart, in the heart of every believer. And from there, from within your heart, He cries out to the Father, Abba, Father. And so the story of the Gospel, the story of the good news, is the story of the Trinity. The story of the Trinity is the story of the good news. The eternal love of God, which goes back forever, has led somehow, wonderfully, to your and my salvation at this moment in history. You have been united to the one true, living, eternal, personal God through the cross of the Father's Son and through the power of the Son's Spirit. That's the good news. That's the Trinitarian Gospel. If you want to meditate more on this, on on what... The Trinity has been doing for all eternity on the activity of the Trinity and creation and redemption, on the centrality of the Trinity to baptism and salvation and church life. I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon if you missed it. For the rest of the sermon today, I want to build on this foundation and discuss just a couple of the implications of the Trinitarian Gospel since all of reality stems from a Trinitarian God, and since our salvation is Trinity-shaped, how then should we live? How should we pray? How should we love? How should we live in community? Particularly in the redeemed community, the church. There are all kinds of things that we could explore And maybe someday we will explore when we get back to this topic. We could look at how the Trinity should shape the way we suffer or the way we see our mission to the world. God has sent the Son and Spirit and then the Son has sent us. 
the way we understand what a Christian family should look like, that community of the family. But today we'll just look at what the Trinity means for life in the broader community of the church and what it means for prayer. First, let's consider the Trinity and the community life. Since we're made in the image of God, since we're made in the image of God, it follows that we're made in the image of the Trinity. And this means that the life of the Trinity must be reflected in the patterns of our lives. Understanding the Trinity transforms individuality into relationality. Our culture prizes individuality over relationality. We all want to be unique and set apart. We want to do our own thing. We want to be our own person. But when we come to see how God lives and acts, when we remember that He's the prototype and we are the image, He's the original and we're the copy, we are forced to recognize that what really matters most is life together. We are made for togetherness. We are made for friendship. We are made for relationships. We were created to mirror the intra-Trinitarian relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit. Our calling as image bearers of God is to imitate their relationships of self-giving love in our relationships with one another. Because the Trinity lives eternally in community, we must live in community now. And believers will live in community forever. Community is not optional. It's not something that we tack on to our life as an individual. It's not like I'm a solitary individual who then adds community into the mix of who I am. No, I was born into a community, into several communities. I was saved by God into a redeemed community. Community is part and parcel of who I am. Living in community is essential. It's necessary to what it means for me to live as a faithful image bearer of the three-person God. I cannot image God well in isolation. No one can. The whole purpose of my life, the whole purpose of our life together is to embody the life and love of the Trinity in our relationships with one another. This is basic to our calling and purpose as the body of Christ. The Trinity designed each of you to be others-centered just as they are. You are to reflect their self-giving love that saved you in your life in community. So when you live for yourself, you only destroy yourself because that's not what you were made for. You were, you were created for self-giving relationships of love. This means that being a recluse or a hermit, pulling back from community and keeping to yourself is a Trinitarian heresy because it bears the image of an idol and it fails to embody the existence of the true and living God. Individualism is a Trinitarian 
heresy. Wanting to be a self-made man is a Trinitarian heresy because humanity is inescapably social. You cannot escape being a social creature any more than you can deny the social God who made you. And as Christians, our life together in the church must imitate the life in the Trinity. We're called to be a living icon of the Trinity. But we can even go further. We're not only supposed to image the life of the Trinity, we're also incorporated into the life of the Trinity. And we see this especially in John 17 that I read earlier. We also see it in John 14. The Father, Son, and Spirit bind us together with them so that we are swept up into the eternal love that they have for one another. That's what Jesus says in His high priestly prayer in John 17. It's the love that the Father and Son have for one another that holds us together and makes us members of their family. You see, the the life of the Trinity is so deep and wide and generous and open and free that the church can come and live within that life within that communion. God has opened up His life and invited us to come into Himself, themselves. This is why the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 is so important. It tells us where we live. It tells us where our home is. It's in God. Jesus prayed that believers would be one in the Father and the Son. That's the language John, uh, Jesus uses in John 17. And that prayer has been answered through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is in us and we are in Him. And He is in the Father, so we are in the Father and so they are in us. So we not only believe in the triune God, and we not only imitate the triune God, we also live in the triune God. God. If you're a Christian, the Trinity has made their home in you, as John 14 makes very explicit. And you have made your home in the Trinity, as John 17 teaches. To live in the Trinity and to have the Trinity living in you is to live a life of self-giving love for one another. That's what it's going to mean for you on the ground day to day, in your life. That's what 1 John 4, verses 8 and 12 say. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we love one another, God abides in us. He lives in us, and His love is perfected in us. This indwelling of God and God's indwelling of us, we need to see it corporately, and we also need to see it individually. God is in us as we love one another. He is in you personally as you love others. And you are in God. So if if the Trinity has brought you into their divine communion through the cross of Jesus, it should be obvious. It should be obvious because your life should be characterized by love for your neighbor and love for the brethren. For the saints. 
Let's talk about the Trinity in prayer. And this gets us back to Paul's epistles, the ones that we read earlier. Understanding the true nature of the Trinity revolutionizes prayer. Or it should. Christian prayer is utterly unique. We see this especially in the two passages from Galatians 4 and Romans 8. If you want to turn to Galatians 4 in a minute, we're going to, I'm going to look at something in particular. Every religion has prayer. Even, even irreligious people pray when they're in a bind. But Christian prayer is unique because a Christian, when, when he prays, he is never alone. You always pray in a community of at least four persons. You and the Trinity. As a believer, you, your prayers are in the Son and through the Spirit and to the Father. Even when you forget to make that explicit, you don't have to every time, that's what's going on. Because your God is a Trinity. One of the most striking features of the Gospels, the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, is that we encounter someone who is God who also prays to God. This feature, in fact, is one of the main reasons that the, uh, the heresy of modalism cannot be true. If God were one person who sometimes shows up as Father, sometimes as Son, other times as Spirit, we would not expect to find the Son talking to the Father or the Spirit crying out to the Father we would not expect God to be talking to Himself like this if He were just one person. So how can one who is God also pray to God? How do we make sense of this? The early church made sense of this by confessing that there are three persons within the life of God. Three persons who communicate with one another, who talk to one another as distinct persons. And this is important background to our Praying. Christian prayer is a Trinitarian act. When you pray to God, you enter into the Trinitarian fellowship. That fellowship, that Trinitarian fellowship that we get glimpses of in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. When you pray to the Father, you're getting caught up into the prayers of the Son and the Spirit. So if you have a Bible, open it to Galatians 4. Paul shows us something interesting about the Trinitarian nature of prayer. Galatians 4, verse 6. <clears throat> and because you are sons, Paul says, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Who is praying in this verse? Who is the one crying out, Abba, Father, in Galatians 4, 6? It's the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul calls Him, the Spirit of God's Son. This is a very, very Trinitarian passage. And think about what this means. If you're a believer, then God has sent the praying Spirit. The praying Spirit of His Son into your heart. Now turn back to Romans 8. And I want, I want to show you something fascinating about what Paul 
does here. Romans is three books before Galatians, right before 1 Corinthians. Go to Romans 8, and we're going to look at verse 15. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In this, not just in this verse, but in this whole passage surrounding this verse, Paul uses a lot of the same language, same themes that he used back in Galatians 4. But I just want you to look at verse 15, and I'm, I'm going to ask you again, who is praying in this verse? Who is the one crying out, Abba, Father, in Romans 8.15? Is it the Spirit this time? Well, we know that He's doing it. But, it. but in this verse, it's us, believers. In Galatians 4.6, it's the Spirit of the Father's Son who cries out to the Father. But here in Romans 8.15, it's the Spirit-filled Christian who is enabled by the Spirit, who's also crying out, Abba, Father, to cry out, Abba, Father, Himself. You see, our prayers to the Father are fundamentally echoes of the Son and Spirit's prayers to the Father. Paul fleshes this out for us in the rest of Romans 8. We're going to look at a few more verses, so keep your Bibles open to Romans 8. And look down at verse 26. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. They're beyond words, these groanings that the Spirit gives us. Now, earlier in this same chapter, and we read it, I read it as the epistle lesson, Paul says that we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the redemption of our body on the last day. But here in verse 26, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is groaning. He also groans within us. Good timing there. And these groanings are prayers. When we don't know how to pray, the praying Spirit in our hearts prays or groans for us. He makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered. It's only God talk. Verse 27 reiterates this point. Paul says in verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts, God, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to God. Or what it means there is according to the will of God. But you see, it's not just the Spirit who prays in us and for us and with us and through us. Look down at verse 34. That's why I read down to verse 34 instead of stopping at 30. Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died? I'm sorry, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So it's not just the Spirit, it's the Son who also makes intercession for us. So what do we make of all of this? The unique thing about Christian prayer is that it takes place in the life of the Trinity. 
in the Spirit, we are caught up into the prayers of the Son, as well as the groanings or prayers of the Spirit Himself. The, the, the praying Spirit of the Son sweeps us up into the prayer life of the Son, so that our prayers are joined to His prayers to the Father. Our prayer life is included in His prayer life. His prayers subsume our prayers. And so the Christian never prays by himself. His prayers are never just his or her prayers. We need to remember that Jesus and the Spirit are primarily the ones crying out, Abba, Father. The Son and Spirit have been talking to the Father for all eternity. And the Son is a unique Son. We are also sons, children, but the Son of God, Jesus, is a unique Son with a special relationship. And so He and the Spirit are the ones primarily calling out, crying out, Abba, Father. But the good news is that we have been incorporated into this eternal fellowship of God in the Son and through the Spirit, we also can cry out, Abba, Father. And what Jesus says in that prayer in, verse, in chapter 17 of John is that the love that God shows the unique Son, the love that the Father shows the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, He also shows us. So while we're not the unique Son of God, we experience and receive the love that the Father shows the Son. In union with the eternal Son of God, we pray as blood-bought sons of God. So, when you pray for the right things, when you pray according to God's will, the Son endorses your prayer. He, he puts His name on it and He presents it to the Father. And when you don't know how to pray or when you pray for the wrong things. It happens. You can be praying by faith and be praying for the wrong things because your understanding of God's will is still immature. It still needs to mature. So when you don't know how to pray or when you pray for the wrong things, the Son and Spirit, Paul says, make up for your weaknesses. They intercede for you. They pray for you and alongside you. They take your prayers and they transform them. They make them better. They revise your prayers so that they're in line with God's will. And then they offer them to God and they are answered. As they correct your prayers, when you're praying to God by faith, knowing that He exists that, and that He rewards those who seek Him, as they correct those prayers, they at the same time increase your faith. And they correct your understanding of God's will so that you know how to pray better next time. Prayer is an intra-Trinitarian event. If you are a believer, the Trinity is where you live. It's where you move. It's where you have your being. And it's where you pray. God is not aloof. He's not unavailable. He has made Himself accessible. He has drawn near to you in His Son and through His Spirit. The Father has bridged the gap between you and Him, between you and the Trinity by sending His Son to die for you and by sending His Spirit to live in you, in your heart. 
God the Father has adopted you into His eternal family. He has invited you into the Trinitarian community through the blood of His Son. Through the power of the Spirit, He has enabled you to be a faithful image bearer as you live in community with others. So, knowing the Trinity is not a matter of becoming a scholastic theologian. It's not a matter of mastering a bunch of arcane jargon or making fine philosophical distinctions. Knowing the Trinity means living and loving as God lives and loves. It means living and loving as Father, Son, and Spirit have been living and loving from all eternity. Let's pray and ask for God's help to do this faithfully. Father, we come to You in Your Son and through the Spirit of Your Son and we give You thanks for Your Word which is truth and we ask for Your help to live faithfully in, in the community of the Trinity that we have been caught up into in the community of the redeemed people of God, the church, and in the world, in our neighborhoods, so that we can love you, God, and love one another, our brethren, and love our neighbor as you have called us to do, and to reflect your love as we do it. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.